Hello, welcome. You're listening to Feed, Play, Love, a bite-sized parenting podcast, a place you can find advice, understanding and support as you care for your small humans. I'm Siobhan Hunt. How do you feel about terms like body with a vagina instead of the word woman or chest feeding instead of breastfeeding? These are terms that the medical world is grappling with as they attempt to address people born with female anatomy who don't identify as female. Dr. Carleen Gribble is an adjunct associate professor of nursing and midwifery at the University of Western Sydney. Together with other experts in the medical field, she contributed to an article exploring the use of sexed language in pregnancy and birth. For Carleen and her colleagues, it isn't a matter simply about feelings, but more about the real-world impact of de-sexing the language around birth and pregnancy. Hi, Carleen. How are you? Hi, Siobhan. Before we start, can you explain what you mean by sexed language in this context? So, uh, so when we talk about sex language, we're talking about reference to the sexes, so male or female. And specifically when we're talking about pregnancy, birth and breastfeeding, we're meaning the word woman in a sex sense, so meaning a female person, and mother meaning a female parent. So that, that's the sexed meanings of those words. Now, this has been a very challenging topic to talk and write about. Why is that? Well, I mean, it's challenging for a couple of reasons. Firstly, it's a very emotive topic. So people have, I guess, very strong views about whether it's appropriate to use sex language or whether it's appropriate to use desexed language. So avoiding using a woman and mother in their sex meaning when we're talking about maternity. So that's the first reason. And I think the second reason is because it is so emotive. There's been so little discussion about it. People have been uh, frightened of talking about it. Discussion hasn't been encouraged. So we really wrote this paper, I guess, with the idea of actually opening up discussion, laying out some of the concerns that we had with the desexing of, of the language of maternity and also just presenting, I guess, some principles um, and some examples of implications to just hopefully help people in thinking about it. So I suppose when we talk about people being emotive, uh, that's generally when things get so heated, you're either for us or against us. So I guess is the fear in this conversation that simply by talking about the issue, you'll be labelled as transphobic. Yes, absolutely. And it has, you know, it has happened um, and it seems to come along with several other, uh, I guess, uh, descriptions that you usually don't want to have. So, yes, transphobic, racist, uh, white supremacist. <laughs> There's a whole heap of language that, that people use. For myself and for the other authors, we're very confident um, that what we've done here is none of those things. So I guess it doesn't uh, it doesn't have too much of an impact on us. But it is, I think, very frightening for lots of people to to be called uh, names like that or or to be told that they're bigoted. Um, and that's again one of the things that has stopped people from having the conversation. And I think it's extremely unhelpful. 
because this impacts everybody, including transgender people. And we include, we include some examples in our paper where we, we show what can happen if you avoid referencing sex when it's central um, and how that can negatively impact healthcare that's provided to trans people. So We'll get to what the repercussions can be for trans people if you change the language a little sure. bit further on, <clears throat> but what's the change in word going to make a difference? You know, it's almost like they're saying, what's the difference between being called Miss and Ms? Then we're just de- taking out the attachment to those words to be more inclusive. On a real practical level, though, what is it that you are arguing for when it comes to sex language? We're arguing for clarity predominantly and ease of understanding and having the focus where it should be. So, for example, if you're talking about um, mothers and the mother-infant relationship, you need to be specific about that. To replace it with the word parent, it actually changes the meaning because while every mother is a parent, not every parent is a mother. And sometimes you need to be specific. Not always, but sometimes. So, so it's around things. It's around things like that. But also, you know, talk about inclusive language. And generally, when people are, are using that phrase, they're using it in a very narrow meaning. They're meaning we want to use language that is going to be most comfortable for people who don't like references to their sex to be made. So for, for transgender people, but. That's a very narrow definition of inclusivity. And when we're doing health communication, generally the people that we really need to be most inclusive of are those who are going to be at risk of poor health outcomes. And usually that's people who have socioeconomic disadvantage, they may have low literacy levels, they may have an intellectual disability, or they may not have English as their first language. And for those people, if you change communication so they're more difficult to understand, it's actually excluding them. It's meaning they're not understanding what you're saying and that's going to put their, their health at risk. So so there's really a need to, um, I think, look at this holistically, look at the whole picture and find solutions that are going to work best for people which will be different in different contexts. Gabrielle Jackson wrote a book called Pain and Prejudice, A Call to Arms for Women and Their Bodies, and it was looking in detail at how women have been made invisible in the medical system. And I have read that part of the argument for keeping sexed language as part of this discussion, and when we talk about uh, women's health issues, that it's super important to keep it that way because we're suddenly becoming more visible in the medical system and this would be effectively erasing women again. Um, What do you think about that argument? I think that's absolutely the case. And I mean, today I saw uh, a tweet by the US Civil Liberties Organisation and they were talking about who is most impacted by abortion bans. And the list of those most impacted included racial minorities, LBGTQI plus people, a whole heap of of people with a disability, a whole heap of different people who it said these are the people who are most impacted by abortion bans. 
uh, women wasn't mentioned. They were completely invisible. So yeah. uh, they had been very deliberate in avoiding using the word woman for the reasons that we've been discussing. But in practice, what that did is mean it's suggesting that actually we're not singling out women. This is not something that impacts women. Therefore, by implication, it may have ramifications for men. We're saying that this could impact both men and women. So it's just inappropriate inclusivity to, to not actually say this is a women's issue. This is a women's reproductive health and reproductive rights issue. It's almost an example of cancel culture, isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, it it is exactly like you were saying. It's like it's just women's needs are are not there. They're not being presented, even though they are absolutely central to to this issue that they were discussing. Now, you mentioned earlier that there could be potential repercussions for the trans community if we do de-sex language in pregnancy and birth. Are you able to give me any um, concrete examples of where that might happen? Uh, So I think the concerns are predominantly around not so much communications, but around health records and research. So so something that we've seen happen is that health records, and this has happened in Australia too, have allowed people to actually change their sex marker in their medical records. So um, they may be uh, female, but their medical records says that they're male. And we've seen a number of circumstances where that's actually had quite significant consequences. In in one example, a trans man uh, turned up to the emergency department of a hospital experiencing abdominal pain and wasn't able to clearly communicate or clearly be understood that they were in fact female. And so what resulted was a a delay in diagnosing that actually this person was in labour, was pregnant and in labour. And that delay potentially resulted in a very sad circumstance where the baby in fact died. So those sorts of things happen. But more broadly, you've got issues with there there are differences in, in terms of what's normal and what's abnormal for a whole variety of test results for pathology and so you know if there's the wrong sex marker then you're going to increase the likelihood of misdiagnosis missed diagnosis and delayed diagnosis for those people and that has been recognized there's been a recent plan released by New South Wales Health where they actually talked about this the need to actually have health records that recorded people's sex and their gender identity, so enabling them to, to have good health care. So given that I know you're not transphobic and you want to be inclusive and make people as comfortable as possible when it comes to birth and pregnancy, what do you see as a practical way forward? My personal view on this, and and as I've said before, different people will want to apply different things in in different contexts, and there will be places where it might be appropriate to use desex language. But I think for broad health communications, I think for when we're talking about medical care and in research, that we should, where sex is central, 
we should be using sex language. On an individual level, of course, when you're working with providing care to having conversations with, with individuals who prefer de-sex language to be used or gendered language, so language that is actually referring to their gender identity rather than their sex, then I think that absolutely that's what should happen. And there should be specific communications for trans people who will have actually very many of them specific medical needs as a result of treatment that they may have received as a part of their the support of their gender identities. So they actually need specific and targeted communications. And we do this with other groups. You know, we have we have information for families who are having babies that presupposes that the baby is born into the family and is staying with the family, is going to be cared by their mother and their father. But that is not the circumstance for every baby, some of them are in foster care, some of them are adopted, sometimes uh, babies are born via surrogacy situations and the general communications don't necessarily work very well for them. So we provide specific targeted communications that have the information that they require. We provide information in different languages as well. That's another example of actually adjusting the information that we're providing to meet the needs of individuals. So I really think that that's, I think, a tried and true approach that's been used for other groups that have specialised needs and that that's what we can do that here too. Carlene, thank you so much for your time this evening. You're very welcome. That's Dr. Carlene Gribble. She's the Adjunct Associate Professor of Nursing and Midwifery at the University of Western Sydney and I'll include links to the paper we discussed in this interview in the notes of this episode. I'm Siobhan Hunt. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please rate and review us so we can reach and help even more parents. And if you have a topic you'd like me to cover, send your email to feedplaylove at theparentbrand.com.au. See you next time.